Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. This is episode number 428 with Tim Full of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Airtasker co-founder and CEO, Tim Fung. Born in 2012 at a crucial moment for the sharing economy, Airtasker has really proven itself as a pioneer in revolutionizing the way we work and driving what we know as the flexible economy. Over the past decade, Airtasker has acquired more than 4.3 million registered users, built a worth of 255 million created 1.7 billion dollars in value of job opportunities. So if you want to know how to scale a two-sided marketplace and the challenges that Tim has faced along the way, please welcome to the podcast Tim Fung. Hey founder fam, before we jump into today's conversation, I'd love to take a minute to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Sales Master AI. When iOS 14 hit, a lot of us didn't really know how to respond. And at Founder, 
part of our response has been turning to trusted experts like SMAI to lead the way forward. SMAI has really helped us drive the performance of our cost per acquisition to really acquire customers on Facebook. So do you want your ads to work better? Then if so, salesmaster.ai can help your business engage more buyers automatically using AI that places your ads in real time in front of audiences most likely to convert. So you can really increase the performance post iOS 15 and take the guesswork out of growth. Head to the link in our show notes to learn more now. Okay, now on to today's episode. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So I guess maybe uh, going uh, back through through my career, I started out in marketing, uh, worked in investment banking for about five years, joined a, a talent representation agency because I wanted to be like Ari Gold from from um, from Entourage. So um, got to start there, and that's how I fell into to doing startups. Um, the co-owner of the agency. Uh, let me work on a startup together with him um, called Amazim. So we started that together at the back of the the modeling agency. And that was how I got an MBA in starting a startup and then um, had the idea for Airtask when I was moving apartments. And I I asked a friend to help me move uh, because he's got a truck that he uses to do deliveries for his business. And that just got us thinking is like, you know, why do we ask friends and family to do all these kinds of jobs when there, you know, there's so many people out there who would want to be doing this kind of work to be able to earn money. And um, so combining those two things, I guess, you know, learning about startups, um, seeing something that the, a problem that could be fixed is how I, I fell into this. And 11 years later, I'm still doing it. Yeah, wow, there you go. So um, Airtasker is a, is a pretty well-known brand and product here in Australia. I'm a user, um, many of my friends are, um, and it's it's a really great two-sided marketplace that allows you to find people to to help you with 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 bits and pieces, right? If you need something done, you can find an air tasker. Um, so I want to go back though to earlier days, Tim. Um, what did life look like when you were young? So um, I was, you know, I'm really fortunate. Uh, was grew up here in in Sydney. Um, in uh, Leafy St. Ives Chase, which, um, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I had to worry about was probably that it was just like pretty boring <laughs> kind of uh, place. It was, you know, far from the city and, you know, a very suburban sort of uh, upbringing. Um, so born, born um, uh, on the North Shore and then, uh, you know, went to public school uh, all, the way, uh, all the way through. Um, sort of worked my way down uh, down the train line um, in here in uh, here in Sydney, and um, yeah, had a pretty idyllic, I guess, um, you know, uh, young uh, upbringing in in public school. When it comes to kind of like uh, starting a business, did you ever think that you would growing up? You know, my father was quite entrepreneurial, and you know, was involved in a lot of small businesses, whether they were things like restaurants or. Um, you know, um, in the merchandising business and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, we don't often like talk about um, business at home. You know, I would, um, you know, always have like part-time jobs or, or, or be trying to fix things or, or try to work things out um, when, I was, when I was younger. And so I guess, um, you know, I never thought about like, you know, starting a business uh, per se, but I was involved in a lot of um, sort of business or problem solving stuff when I was a, when I was a young kid. Um, and then, you know, during university, 
um, you know, started a small business. We were, um, we loved going to the racetrack, um, you know, to drive our, our cars and we couldn't, um, you know, none of us sort of, you know, had the money to be able to actually, you know, take on that hobby because it's, you know, it's quite a few hundred dollars every time um, you want to go. And so, you know, we started a business, inverted commas, uh, renting out the racetrack and then selling tickets to other people that would cover our costs. Um, so, yeah, I guess like starting businesses or like solving problems was a key, a key theme, but I never really thought about it in, in, in you know, such a specific sense as like starting a startup or like starting a business. When you started Amazim, when was that? Um, Amazim, the, the idea came about from Amazim actually um, in the back end of 2009. The way it started is that, um, you know, um, Peter O'Connell, who was my, um, was my mentor and the owner of the of the um, talent representation agency that I was working at, he had um, seen that in Europe, these um, these guys have been really really successful in building a um, a similar business um, across about five European uh, countries. And so, in two thousand and nine, he tapped me on the shoulder and he was like, "Hey, these these founders are really really talented. Let's go and join them and 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 um, back them into doing it again here in Australia." Um, and so that's, um, that's how the idea came about. And, and that sort of started in the back end of 2009. And, and we launched the company in the, um, in the back end of 2010. And what happened next? Well, um, it, was, it was a pretty wild ride. Um, one of the cool things was being able to work with entrepreneurs who had done this before. And so, um, you know, they had, um, you know, and I don't want to like be stereotype the, the German uh, entrepreneurial founder, but they had the thousand point, um, you know, project uh, plan. And it was, you know, the question was just every day, are we on plan? Yep, we're on plan. <laughs> and so we, um, we sort of just worked our way through this thousand point plan that they had. Uh, we raised about um, $40 million in private capital, which I think back then was like a lot of money um, to raise off an idea um, rather than a, um, than, you know, a proven revenue generating uh, business. Um, we had to go and um, cut a wholesale deal with Optus, um, so that was a pretty big, um, you know, pretty big uh, operation to to go through. And then we ended up hiring about two hundred people in the space of a year. Um, and you know, in the end, they we actually um, ended up um, listing the business on the ASX in two thousand and fifteen. So it was about a five year journey, which I think for a lot of people is is quite a quite a quick one um, to go from you know starting a startup to to listing on the ASX. Yeah, wow. And when did you start Airtasker? Well, we had the idea in 2011. Um, and so, you know, um, that was about midway through the year um, that, that I was moving apartments and sort of had this, oh, this is a good idea. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't think it was a good idea. I thought this is an idea. Um, and um, I started pitching it to a few people um, in mid-2011. First, I pitched it to my roommate, who's in um, superannuation, um, funds management and he's pretty conservative so when I pitched it to him um, and he said you know hey this is not the worst idea I was like oh wow that's like equivalent to you know you, you're jumping out of your skin um, and then I pitched it to a few other um, uh, uh, friends um, it, that I respected a lot and um, yeah this was kind of the one that, that sort of stuck and so it took us about nine months and we launched the company in 2012 um, and so, yeah, um, a little over 10 years um, has gone by since then. When did you kind of move on from Amazim to start Airtasker and what did that, what happened there? I think one of the things that's really important um, as you're building your career is like, you really want to like make sure that like you're building a, a network of people 
um, that respect you and, you know, that you've got a high degree of integrity uh, with. Like, that's really important to me. I think it's important to most um, people who are in the business community because you're going to have to keep interacting with these people. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small ecosystem. So uh, back in 2000 and um, in about, around about mid-2011, we told the folks from Amazim, hey, we've got this idea to start a company. Um, and it was myself and my co-founder, Jono. We both worked at, at Amazim and we were both right there, like we employee number one and two um, of Amazim. So it was a pretty big deal when we said, you know, we want to move on to do something else. Um, but it was really great. We actually gave uh, uh, the Amazim founders an opportunity to invest in the company really early on. And so, um, and so they did that. Um, we also said... We also made a, a decision between myself and Jono that we really needed to just um, cut ties and, and do this. Like we were like, you can't start a business like this and half bake it. You know, there's no such thing as a marketplace where, you know, the founders are kind of side hustling this on the weekend. It's just like, we've got to go all in if we want to do this. Um, and so we actually agreed with the guys from Amazing. We're like, hey, can you, you know, they wanted us to stick around. Um, and, um, you know, so that our IP would still be there. Um, but we wanted to, you know, obviously go on and do Airtask. So they said, you know what, you guys can start Airtask, get started in the corner of the Amazing office. And, you know, we'll leave you alone. You, you go and run the business. But if we need you for some, you know, um, intellectual property reason, you know, we can't find some legal agreement. We've, you know, forgotten how this technical roadmap works or whatever. Then we'll tap you on the shoulder and, you know, you're still around. And we're like, that's a pretty sweet deal. You know, we get to keep some salary. We get to keep some rent, um, you know, save some money on rent and, um, and, and work out of the amazing office, um, but work on Airtasker. So um, that, was the, that was the transition. Yeah, wow, interesting. So what were like the first early months like? Because getting a two-sided marketplace going and getting that flywheel effect is very, very, very tough. So talk me through what those first few months looked like, how long did it take to build the platform? Like, talk me through all that. Yeah, you're right. Starting a two-step marketplace, especially one that um, structured like Airtasker is really, really, um, is really, really challenging. So what I mean by that is Airtasker is actually a reasonably um, uh, low structure marketplace. What I mean by that is customers and taskers work together to figure out the scope of the jobs that they're going to do and the price of the jobs that they're going to do. So we determine that as Airtasker, um, they decide between the two of them. And that that's quite what I would describe as like a low structure marketplace. Um, that's in contrast to something like Uber, where Uber will tell you, here's what we do. Here's the price of it. You just tell us where you're going and you know uh, what time you want to go there. We'll take care of the rest. That's quite a high structure marketplace. A little bit easier to get off the ground because the company actually owns a lot of the process, whereas mm -hmm. in an unstructured marketplace, it's the customers and the taskers that own the vast majority of the process. So, yeah, the first um, it wouldn't be the first few months that was hard. It was the first few years, honestly, that were that were really really um, uh, difficult. Um, but yeah, focusing in on I guess those first few months, the first thing is like I, I often see this with founders you kind of have this like trajectory of excitement and motivation as you, as you start a company. So, you know, when you're having beers on a Friday night, you're like, Hey, this is a really good idea. You're like peak excitement. You're like, this is the best thing ever. This is going to go like a rocket ship. Then you usually wake up the next day and it's a bit like, ah, oh, 
this is actually a bit harder than I thought when you start thinking through all the things that you'd have to do to make this work. If you can kind of push through that and start something, I think that's really, really great. Usually get a bit of an adrenaline boost for about 90 days after you start a company. Mm. But I often see this about 90 days into starting a company, most people sort of go, oh my gosh. Like they start looking at their cash burn. They're like, wow, like, you know, I'm burning, you know, anywhere from 20 grand a month to $100,000 a month or something like that. And then you start looking at like, what are the targets that you'd actually have to hit to make this business worthwhile, you know, to, to break even and, you know, really have a company. And, you know, in the case of a marketplace, it's a hell of a lot of transactions and tasks that you need to be doing uh, to make it worthwhile. And I remember us looking at it and we were like, we basically need to get to like 50,000 tasks a month to make this thing worthwhile. And I think at the time we were literally doing probably 200 a month, um, you know, and to be like, oh, you got to get to like 50,000. That's quite, that's quite um, a mountain to, to sort of climb. And so that was pretty difficult. But one of the good things was that we had jumped all in. So Jono and I had said, you know, we're just going to do this. Like rather than, you know, let's try this on the weekend and see if it works. One of the things that we had done is we just jumped in and said, we're going to do it. And we raised about a million and a half dollars from people that we, you know, um, knew in, a, in our networks and, you know, had developed relationships with. And in some ways, you know, it sucked for those first few years because it was just like constant stress of like losing everyone's money. On the other hand, it was a forcing function to say, you know, if you've raised money from people that you know and you care about, um, you're going to go down trying for sure. And so we just tried a lot of different tactics, tried everything, found a few things that stuck. Um, none of them were a silver bullet, but the accumulation of all of those different things that we did uh, really worked out, um, you know, but it did take years and years to build up the necessary traction to to actually have some momentum and scale in the business. Yeah, wow. And I'm curious, like, how did you get your first air tasker and first, like, um, task? In retrospect, um, we had built a, um, a product which from the service provider, the tasker side of things, um, it's sort of like 10x better than most of the alternatives out there for a certain segment. And what I mean by that is most um, businesses, the way they work is um, if you're a service provider and you're, you're looking for a way to, you know, to earn more revenue, make more income, earn more money, usually you have to pay up front. So most of the models are like structured as you pay me $100 a month and I'll let you join my you know, my network, or you pay me $50, um, you know, per lead. And, you know, hopefully you can make some money out of that. And what Airtasker did that was quite different is we said, no, all of that's free. You can come onto our platform. You can see all the opportunity, all the jobs in your area, completely free. You can engage with customers and, um, and, and, you know, um, have the opportunity to sell them on, on what you can do for them. All of that's for free. And only, if you make money, will we earn some money off the back of that? So we are totally aligned with you as a service provider. You make money, we make money. So that side of things was um, a little bit easier. It's like, if you get the jobs, then there are people there who will love that model um, and can do those jobs. And so it was all about getting the jobs uh, posted. Uh, that was the, the struggle um, in the first, few, um, the first few months and years. And really, what we found out was the problem there was like, 
Airtask was like a great concept, but most people didn't have the inspiration on what they could actually do with Airtasker. So like, it was kind of like changing people's behavior. Most people were like, oh yeah, awesome. So I could get anything done. That's a great idea. And then they wouldn't do anything. And so what we figured out that we had to do was like create examples and case studies to inspire people. And um, that's why early on in the, in the you know, phase of the business, there are a lot of things like, um, you know, lining up for the iPhone, you know, for the first iPhone in the world. Um, that was kind of like a thing where people would go, oh, okay. You know, that's something, <clears throat> that's an interesting use case for Airtask. That's something that I could, um, that I could post as well. And so it was all about like inspiring people about what they could get done um, through our platform. Yeah, I see. And I'm curious, uh, how long did it take you to get to that 50,000 tasks to make it worthwhile? There was, you know, as with all business, you get everything wrong. Like um, all of your business assumptions, you know, some are wrong in the wrong way. <laughs> um, often they're wrong in the wrong way. Um, sometimes they're wrong, but in the right uh, way. One of the things that we discovered is that, um, you know, in our initial assumptions, we thought, we thought that the average task value would be around $15, $15. It turned out that the average task, you know, the average basket size for a worker on our platform started out at about $70. And then every year sort of increased as the, as the jobs got more technical and sophisticated, mm. the average task price escalated up and up and up. And now it's well over $200, um, you know, it's the average task value. But because of that, we didn't quite need to hit 50,000 jobs a month to be, um, to be able to be, you know, a sustainable uh, business model. Um, but yeah, to get to 50,000 jobs a month, yeah, probably took us about five years. So <laughs> that definitely took its time. And, you know, now we're, you know, many multiples of that. How long did it take you then to make it worthwhile for you guys to go finally, Hey, this is working. It's a funny thing as a, um, you know, someone who's building a business, it kind of, it really, and, and this is not a sort of like lip service type um, thing to say. It just feels like it's never, like it's never finished. Like it just feels like this constant thing that could be more and bigger and better. And and for that reason, I think that, you know, it is important sometimes to, um, to pause and sort of like acknowledge milestones and things like that, because otherwise it is just, you know, it just goes on uh, forever. But I would say it's the main thing. Um, I've never really looked at like, you know, has it been worthwhile or not worthwhile? It's more just like, what, what do we want to do? Uh, what do we want to do next? But of course, you know, there've been some really nice milestones, like, you know, um, publicly listing the company was definitely a great milestone. Um, you know, our first billboard uh, was a great uh, milestone. Um, seeing some of our leaders really grow into new, um, you know, to become well-known executives in Australia and go to start other huge businesses, um, that was definitely a milestone as well. We've got, you know, a lot of Airtask alumni have gone on to start like super successful, um, you know, um, startups in their own right. Um, so all of these things are like milestones, but it never really feels like it's finished. And what would you say were the biggest challenges with Airtasker besides seeding? What were some other cha- massive challenges? Raising money, definitely being a, um, was definitely like a hard one. And, and when you're the founder and CEO of the company, raising money is kind of like the, it's probably your most important job for the, for the first sort of like two years of the business because there's nothing there other than your spirit and your, um, you know, pitch to investors to, to, to get them to back your idea. 
So raising money, you know, was always a challenge in those early few years, um, especially since in Australia, there haven't been a huge number of like consumer startups that have been successful. Like there've been a hell of a lot of global B2B um, uh, SaaS successes now, which is fantastic. Not a huge amount of consumer startups and um, even less so local consumer startups. You know, you can, you can, um, you know, there, there's of course been companies like Manylog and, you know, uh, things like that, but, but not a huge number of them. And so that also made it challenging. Um, so raising capital would be one. I think, um, you know, there's always the people, um, the people uh, side of things, uh, recruiting the right people, having to fire people for the first time, super uh, challenging. Um, going through cost reductions, you know, if you want to make a business successful, you've got to be looking at both how do you drive the top line growth, but also how do you be efficient and make sure that you've always got the right team in the right spot. So I think, um, you know, having to let people go, turn over a team, exit people, probably something that people don't really like talking about much, but I think a core challenge and a core skill of any founder is being able to make those uh, kind of hard decisions as well. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I'm curious as well, just around um, the great resignation. Like, has that driven a lot of uh, air taskers, like quitting their jobs and going all in? Like, um, has that been a driver for you guys? Um, actually, it's really interesting because um, in terms of labor markets, air tasker feels the labor markets in two ways. Um, you know, in one way, we feel it within our organization. So, uh, all of the, um, you know, the, the talented folks that we bring on board to work on our software platform and operations in marketing, et cetera. But then we also feel that in relation to taskers and the community um, side of the, the platform, whereby, um, you know, you've got the actual workers on the platform and, and that um, also ebbs and flows with the supply and demand of labor. So internally, in our organization, I'd say the Great Resignation huge challenge um we're definitely competing you know in a pretty um, brutal um uh, battle for for talent across things like product data engineering etc um that certainly seems to have cooled off um over the the recent sort of you know well really the last probably two months but um but you know as the as the economy has sort of pulled back the great resignation pressure has been a little bit eased but you know Definitely wage growth is super high. Um, you know, expectations are from staff are, are super high. And so that, that is a challenging thing to, to manage in terms of your cost base. 
and 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 um, challenging to to manage in terms of like bringing together a team that's super motivated in in such a unique sort of um, economic period. And then on the um, marketplace side, I think it's been really interesting, which is that our task is um, we were traditionally a very demand constrained but supply heavy marketplace. So we had a lot more workers than we did have jobs available. Um, of course, with the great resignation and like the labor shortage, we've seen that supplies come down a little bit relative and, and um, it'll be exciting when that starts to, to bounce back. I think that's going to be a, a really good thing um, for, uh, for our marketplace. Yeah. And I'm curious, you said um, you talked about kind of some things that are not often talked about as a, as a founder around like raising money or managing your cost base, perhaps even having to, you know, let people go. I'd love to hear about your leadership style um, and how it's developed as Airtasker has scaled. I think um, the the core thing um, with being a, a leader during these difficult times, I think the first thing would be um, to be vulnerable and transparent with your team. Um, and I think that's, you know, sometimes easier said than done. What I mean by that is I think as a leader, it's important that you can share your problems with people. Often you, because these topics can be a bit taboo, you you kind of like can, you know, sit there ruminating in, in bed at night, you know, think looking up at the wall or whatever, looking up at the ceiling and thinking like, oh, I've got to make all these decisions by myself. No one else can make them. Um, I need to make them because, you know, I've screwed up and I've let our cost base get too big or I've hired the wrong people. And so it's all on me. And what I found is um, if you have the right team, um, you, um, you want to be really like vulnerable and transparent with them, which is um, to say, hey, here's the problem, guys. Like we've done this X, Y, Z. Um, we've made X mistakes or these errors or, um, or we just need to make these changes. It's not always about mistakes and errors. Sometimes it's just, it is just about change. Um, and to really like work with those people and to, um, to share the problem with them. And what I've noticed every time that you do this, people step up so much more than you would uh, ever imagine. So, you know, um, having to make a decision to, to say do redundancies um, or, or layoffs um, is something that, you know, when I was in my earlier uh, days of leadership, I'd sit there going, oh, I've got to do this all by myself. It'd be so stressful, so anxious. Um, but as times uh, went on and, you know, you had to do these kinds of difficult decisions, um, you know, more and more, I found that it's so good to just sit down with your team and just say, hey, guys, we need to do this together. And uh, people always step up. And, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite incredible how you can sort of underestimate um, people's um, abilities. Um, but, yeah, when you, when you create a team with, like, high integrity, a high degree of trust um, between the, the group members, um, yeah, you tend to see people step up really, really well. And that just means that stuff gets done with a, you know, a lot better way. And, and actually as a founder as well, it's great for your, or it's a positive for your mental health, I would say, which is to know that you're, you're surrounded um, by people who, who want to support you and, and go on the journey with you. Yeah, it's interesting around you talk about the vulnerability. Um, uh, how do you make sure you don't scare people though? First of all, I think that it's easy to... Um, uh, again, sort of like think that, you know, I need to tell someone they need to reduce our cost base by 20% and they're just going to melt down and just go like, oh my God, and, you know, freak out and, and run away. Um, the Like every time I've done this and, you know, like I, I, I haven't been, you know, through every experience before. I'm sure there are other experiences that are out there, but every time that I've done that, 
um, the other person's going like, I see why. Like, that makes sense. Like, and, and by the way, you, you do need to be really clear about your principles and your why when you do this, um, these, these kinds of things. Like, for example, if you come in and just tell someone, hey, we just need to cut 20% of our staff or something like that, that's where people go like, okay, that, that sounds freaky. Um, but if you say to someone, hey, we've got a million dollars of cash in the bank, we currently have a burn rate of $100,000 a month or whatever that is. If we continue to burn like this, we will run out of money in 10 months time. We think that the economy is no good. And, you know, we've spoken to investors and they've said that, you know, on our current revenue run rate, we're not going to be able to raise money within 10 months. Then people go like, oh, well, it makes sense. Of course, you have to cut your costs to make sure that you, you don't get into that situation. No one wants to run out of money. Everybody understands that, you know, you've spoken to investors and you're not going to be able to raise. Um, therefore, if you want the company to keep going, um, you're going to have to make these cost cuts. And I think in that kind of situation, most people nod their head and go like, okay, cool. And in the worst case scenario, they say, that's awesome. I'll help you execute on this. Um, company is not for me in the long run. I want to go work at Google or I want to go and work at, um, you know, um, another company. And, you know, um, as long as that's like a high integrity relationship, that's fantastic. It's like, awesome. Go and, um, go and you know, uh, pursue that dream uh, too. So, yeah, there's just, um, I've just found that from transparency and vulnerability, it's very infrequent that people will just flip out and, you know, and sort of um, not want to go on that journey with you. But you have to, you have to be precise about like what your principles are, what your values are and what the situation is. And when it comes to like doing, uh, you know, do, doing the hard stuff, right? These, these, this is the real tool. This is, this is what it takes to, you know, unfortunately, these, these are the hard times of, of building a business and, and being a leader. Sometimes you have to make difficult decisions, whether that is laying off staff, reducing your cost base, all sorts of difficult decisions, right? I'm curious how, because inherently as humans, we, we don't want to feel like failures. Like how do, you, how do you navigate that? Well, I think one useful exercise is to um, think about your future self. Um, and I didn't invent this. I think it's like a, a Daniel Kahneman kind of um, construct. But to, um, you know, when you think about like not wanting to be a failure, um, in the context of redundancies, usually you have two options. One is you can feel some pain today, um, cut your cost base as an example by, by doing redundancies, and you'll feel a bit crap today, but your, your future self is almost certainly going to be happy with the decision that you made today because your future self is going to be like, awesome, I still have money um, to, to keep running our business and grow uh, in the next year. Alternatively, you can do the opposite of that, which is, you know, essentially say, you know what, I'm not going to make this hard decision today. I'm not going to feel like a failure today. I'm just going to keep plowing along. But your future self is thinking, oh my gosh, um, I'm going to be the failure now because um, current day uh, Tim uh, didn't make the hard decisions that he, that he should have made. And I think when you frame it up that way, of course, we all want to avoid failure. I think it's about um, not, um, not thinking about that in terms of like instant gratification, but thinking about that over you know, yourself and maybe yourself in 12 months time. And um, yeah, I think it's really healthy if you can make those hard decisions today, um, because that means that your, your future self is, is happy with the decisions and, and failure, hopefully. Yeah, no, that's great advice. So I'm curious around the processing, the process of IPOing, like uh, what was unexpected around uh, executing an IPO? 
Yeah, so I think um, the first thing is that, um, yeah, maybe a little bit of background about why we decided to IPO. So in 2019, we um, got our business um, into cash flow profitability. And that was like a really important milestone for us that we built a company that could completely stand on its own two legs without external funding and, and could pay its own way. Um, we were really thankful that we did that. Um, you know, that did require some hard decisions. We're really thankful that we did that going to 2020 because that's when COVID came along. And when COVID came along, we saw a drop in marketplace volume and we kind of freaked out. We're like, oh my gosh, like, first of all, I'm very thankful that we're profitable, but this looks like it's going to be very disruptive. But actually what we saw was quite the opposite. We saw that it was disruptive, but then our marketplace adapted and actually started to grow even faster because um, people found... When things change, people get creative about how they're going to adapt to that change. And Airtasker allowed them to go, you know what, I don't need my cleaning done anymore, but I do need my shopping done. Um, or I don't need to have a, um, you know, a gardener over because, you know, I can do it myself. I'm at home, but we do need to have home IT set up because I'm moving everything into my remote, um, to my remote working environment. And so we actually saw the company start to, to grow even faster. And so... And we thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to start scaling the business internationally. And we're going to need capital to, to do that. And so we listed the company um, uh, in March of 21. And in terms of the process there, I would say the biggest surprise has been that, um, first of all, I think most people get intimidated by being ASX listed and kind of think that, you know, um, you have to do a lot more reporting and stuff than, um, than you really have to. Um, it's actually not that heavy. You do also have to do a lot of governance up front. You've got to like write a prospectus. You've got to um, go through an audit, you know, from an IT perspective, a security perspective, all these kinds of things. Um, but in many ways, that's just front loading a lot of work that you would have to do um, if you stay private. Because when you stay private, every time you do a round of capital, you have to go through these big due diligence processes and as the numbers get bigger, people are going to start asking for more uh, for more diligence. I think that the process of IPOing has been um, a positive one for us. A lot of work up front. Um, you should definitely do it when you're ready to do it, but it's not as bad as you know a lot of people make out. Yeah, really. Okay, interesting. And for anyone listening in their early stages um, that has aspirations to IPO a business or build a business to the level of success that you have with Airtasker, what advice would you give them? Generally speaking, I don't think the measure, and, and I want to like be cautious about like sounding like, you know, I'm just paying lip service uh, here. Um, but I would say that IPOing, making money, all of those kinds of um, milestones tend to be less engaging and incentivizing over a long period of time than building something which you actually really enjoy building and um you know helping customers that you think um you know in a way that 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 makes you feel impactful and i really do mean that like of course in the back of your mind you're like fantastic make some money um be able to you know buy a nice house or a car or whatever and you know um have some success because that's really you know everyone wants to feel successful but I think that um, the, the main driver is not that. It's actually like I'm actually building something that I love building and I'm serving customers in a way that I feel impactful. And um, 
I think that's much longer lasting and a longer term view. And along that way, if you do focus on that, it's most likely that you're going to um, succeed in terms of like making money and, you know, having a milestone like an IPO or, or, or an exit or something like that. I'm curious as well, like as a founder, how do you learn? Like what, how do you, how do you get better every day? How do you build your development so you can be a CEO of, of, of an, uh, and a founder of an IPO listed company? Well, first of all, you, you, I think you keep the imposter syndrome all the way through. Like, um, you know, I kind of think about my, myself, um, you know, I, I certainly don't tick all the boxes of, of what you'd expect in, a, in, in many other uh, CEOs of large companies. Um, but in terms of like how you keep yourself moving forward. So I think one thing is, I do think it is good to read um, and sort of learn from the wisdom of others as much as possible. I don't read so much like short form content, like medium articles and stuff like that. But, but I do read, um, I do read a lot of books, uh, whether they're books of other people's stories um, or whether they're, you know, books on like consumer behavior or leadership principles, uh, things uh, like that. So a lot of reading. Um, I do have a business coach. I think that's been really valuable, like someone that you can talk to who isn't as, um, I guess, doesn't have as much a stake um, as, say, one of your direct reports or one of your peers. So I think having a business coach is really valuable, someone who can just hold up the mirror to you and show you what you look like and kind of say, hey, is this what you're saying? Yeah, coaching is uh, really, really powerful. And then I'd say like the most important thing is having a really good um, building up what we call like the feedback muscle, which is just having like really good candorous feedback within the organization. And um, that usually involves um, having um, lots of just little conversations with people uh, where you're, um, but where you're discussing, you know, how they can be better or how you can be better. With my chief of staff, we sit down every week, rate ourselves out of 10. And, you know, here's what you could have done better. And here's what I could have done better. Uh, this week. Yeah, that's a great one. Love it. We have to move to the hot seat round now, Tim. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. If you'd go back to the first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? I would say know what you can control and what you can't control and uh, try to focus all of your energies on what you can control. Speaking of learning, what's something you've learned today? Yeah, I think I, I probably shared my, uh, my best lesson, which is the, um, you know, um, not stressing about things that are outside of your control. I think that really is a, a great lesson, which is something that, you know, especially in turbulent, you know, markets and environment like we're in today, really just um, don't stress yourself about what you can't control, just observe it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think that advice is something that you should um, listen to um, and hear, but not um, actually um, act upon. Um, so I'd say that I get lots of great advice, but none of the advice is, is, is more important than um, uh, worrying about what you believe. What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? I would say it, the worst kinds of advice are the ones where it's like a directive solution, where someone goes, this is what you need to do. Um, whether it's like, you know, you need to cut costs by this much or you need to install this piece of software. Um, that kind of advice is usually um, not that, um, is usually not as helpful as advice, which is based on like principles and, um, and learnings. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would have dinner with Michael Schumacher. Um, and the reason why I would do that is because 
I have a huge amount of respect for people who um, do everything at like the elite level and just take uh, their craft um, to, to the top level. And we literally say to Airtasker, taking it to like the Formula One level. Um, and, you know, I think someone that demonstrates that level of dedication to their craft would be really interesting to understand. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time, Tim. This is an incredible interview. If people want to find out more about yourself and Airtasker, where's the best place to go as well? Insta, uh, TikTok, um, and I, um, I post on LinkedIn. I've also got my uh, Medium blog. So um, if you search for Tim J. Fung on Medium, um, that's where I talk about um, marketplaces and, and lots of nerdy stuff like that. All right. Well, look, uh, we'll wrap there. But thank you so much for your time, Tim. This was great. Thanks so much, Nathan. I'll catch you soon. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.